Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change. All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm thrilled to introduce you to Louise Adams this morning. Louise, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Pleasure. So let me give you a little bit of a brief background on Louise before I ask her to join the conversation. Louise is currently the Chief Executive for Australia and New Zealand for Global Engineering and Advisory Services Provider, Oricon. As one of only two females to graduate with a Bachelor of Civil Engineering degree from the University of South Australia in 1991, Louise has a passion for organisational diversity and the role it plays in innovation and is a passionate advocate for female leadership and equality within STEM. In 2016, Louise received a high commendation for female champion of change in Consult Australia's Excellence Awards. In 2018, she was awarded a Chief Executive Women's Scholarship to attend the Wharton Business School. And in 2020, Louise was awarded CEO of the Year by CEO Magazine. And in May of 2020, stepped into the chair role of Consult Australia's Champion of Change. Louise, congratulations on all of those awards and congratulations on the most recent uh, CEO of the year. What an accolade. No, thank you. It uh, certainly is. It certainly added a bit of shine to 2020. I can imagine a much needed element of shine. So, Absolutely. Louise, um, for people in our audience who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, would you share a little bit more about your background and, and your passion and drive and where that comes from? Yeah, look, I think uh, I'm a civil engineer by background and I think that passion came from when I was very young. In fact, uh, I was quite fortunate. I never really had to reflect on all of the challenges around women going into engineering that many people do because as long as I can remember, I shared a great passion for bridges with my grandfather and uh, really he indicated quite early to me that if I had that passion for bridges, I should become a civil engineer and I really have just grown up always wanting to be an engineer, so very passionate about that. And then coming into my career, I realised that uh, further to that, I had a passion for travelling and I've been very fortunate in my career to manage to get around the world and, and work in many different locations around the world. Uh, and then also a passion for seeing people fulfil their potential and, and so really being with people and leading people and engaging with people and communities around uh, around the challenges that they have. So. That's really been my passion and drive throughout my career and I've been incredibly fortunate to, to have been with Oricon for most of my career and, and to have been given a number of opportunities to fulfil that passion. Fantastic. I omitted at the start to uh, share with people that you're, you're married, you've got two stepdaughters who live in the UK, you've got a seven-year-old son, James, a cat called Dodger and a grandson called Oliver. So um, uh, can I, on that note, um, just go back to the story you referred to with your grandfather mm. um, and maybe um, just expand on that a little bit. Sounds like an amazing story. 
Yeah, look, I think uh, he always loved bridges and he used to travel around uh, and take photos of bridges and um, then whilst he was on his normal holidays and he would, you know, back in the day he'd come and the whole family would come around the living room and, you know, you'd take the tapestry off the wall and put the slide projector out and he was an amateur photographer so he would put all of these slides up and slowly these holiday snaps that the whole family would love to see would would start to just be repetitive snaps of the bridges that he'd seen. And so everybody would would make their way and, and sort of depart and get a bit bored of it. And he and I would be left there sitting there watching, you know, looking at all of these bridge photos. And we did that, you know, and over and over again and, and particularly shared a passion for the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, he recounts a story or he he's passed now, but he did used to recount a story when I was quite young, when I was five or so, that we were sitting there looking at these photos and, one photo came up of a bridge in in Southeast Asia and there were it was sort of shanty villages at the base of the abutment of this bridge and I turned to him as five-year-old would and was gobsmacked and said oh my that would be amazing imagine waking up every morning living under a bridge how wonderful would that be and he said to me that wasn't so great for them because every year when the rain came the the river would swell and it would wash their houses away and he said I turned to him at that point and said you know what uh what would I need to do to to fix that for those people? And he said, well, you'd need to be a civil engineer. And like I say, I don't really ever recall a point in my life where I didn't, I wasn't driven to become an engineer um, because of that shared passion and, and uh, you know, that moment. So, What an incredible story and what a gift to have, you know, that influence so early on. Um, you know, it makes me want to ask you straight away before we get into anything else. Um, you know, when we focus on women in leadership and gender diversity in particular, there's a reasonable amount of evidence that points to, um, you know, not enough girls staying involved in STEM subjects um, throughout schooling. And I just wonder, you know, you had an experience that, that engaged you very strongly. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I yeah, I do think that it is an important thing and um you know, we don't have enough people in general going through a lot of STEM subjects at university, particularly in the engineering uh space. We don't have enough full stop and so we definitely don't have enough females going through and when you think when you talk to engineers and particularly uh, female engineers more often than not in my experience, you will have a very purpose-driven inspirational story around why they became an engineer and there will be a point at which they point they say you know they were influenced or they were inspired by particular people and therefore you know I look at schooling and I you look at the sort of ages where you you know and the and the research suggests that uh, that children are influenced in terms of what they enjoy and what they like and and then quite uh, detrimentally often female young women in particular when they're around that young teenager age they can they can get swayed away away from what they like because they start to see the norms and start to feel that they don't belong and I shouldn't like maths and I shouldn't like science Mm. I shouldn't like these technical type of things Um, so I really think that one place that we have to work hard is in the area of teaching Um, we often find that the STEM subjects in schools can be taught by those by by teachers who don't come from a STEM background because we don't actually have enough science and technology and engineering teachers as well. Right. So you can imagine if somebody doesn't have the passion themselves for STEM, it's very difficult to inspire that passion into young children. So I think 
looking at uh, how we inspire our young children, how do we support teachers who are passionate about STEM, how do we engage with schools around trying to perhaps give them a sense of what it is to be an engineer or a scientist and what you can do with that sort of career. And then that goes on starting, you know, supporting uh, young women up through their educational, various educational steps that they take to try and keep them involved. I think it's incredibly important. Really, I think around STEM, it's around 20% of our graduates from universities are female and for engineering particularly, it drops to close to 15%. So we definitely have some work to do. And I do think that hook around purpose, around impact is um, is increasingly uh, appealing to, to young people and, and women in particular. So everybody needs a grandfather like yours or a teacher with an absolute passion that they can, um, that they can pass on. Can we um, move to your journey? And Louise, I guess my first question is, when did the CEO role first come onto your radar? Yeah, I think it was probably uh, maybe about five, six, seven years ago. Um, we, as an organisation, I was out in the UAE at the time, and I was probably going through a period in my career where I was starting to question uh, what it was I was looking to get out of my career and also looking into the organisation and going, you know, what am I doing with this organisation? Is this where I want to be? Uh, and and I'd perhaps lost a little bit of my my flair. I had just come back, as many women do, from having my son and come back from maternity leave and the like. And I was quite fortunate because at that point in time, our organisation, we got a new CEO, Gim Swigers, and he came into our organisation. And I think the profound impact that that had for me was, as I said earlier, one of the things that I did know was that I was passionate about leading. I was passionate about working with people uh, I wasn't really ever a technical engineer. I was more in, interested in the people aspect of, of seeing people fulfil their potential. And what he taught me and what I think he taught our organisation was that leadership in and of itself was a capability. Mm. It wasn't just a status. You didn't just become a leader and then, you know, job done, you're a leader and you'll be a leader for the rest of your life. But it was a capability that needed to be fostered and developed and you needed to continue to go on a leadership journey and you know it would be a lifelong journey of continually getting better uh, and that great leaders could differentiate an organization from other organizations who had good leaders or not so good leaders so I think that passion that connection between what I was quite passionate about and that realization that that there, there was a pathway and that you could be great and that really could differentiate you made me start to think, well, you know, this is something I can work on. Uh, this is something that I can continue to, I'm quite good at now and I can continue to get better at. And that was probably the first moment that I sat back and thought, well, maybe where I want to go with this organisation is test my capabilities to lead the organ, to eventually lead the organisation. Can I ask, um, and uh, and you know that I've also had the pleasure of interviewing Gaum as part of the series, which was wonderful. Can I ask, um, you bring up their leadership as a capability. What does a great leader look like? What does that mean to you? Yeah, that's the, the million dollar question. Because sometimes I think we can much easier talk about what a great leader doesn't look like than what it looks like. And, and that's probably no surprise given that we, you know, we probably have seen some indications of not so great leadership around the world um, in recent times. 
So for me, a great leader, I do think there's that piece about inspiring and motivating and supporting and providing you with uh, a, a pathway, a direction where you, you know, something that uh, you can really latch onto and believe in and, and be driven by. Uh, so I do think that empathy is an important piece around leadership and, and, and this concept that if you're not empathetic, um, you know, you might, particularly in large organisations now, our, our organisations now are so diverse and often so large mm. that the old days of a leader having come up through the ranks and kind of done every job that everybody that they're leading has done uh, no longer exists. And you throw in digital disruption and other things into that, you can often be leading people who are doing things that you really have never had to do yourself. So there has to be a lot of empathy uh, in that journey. Uh, it can't be really just about cracking the whip anymore. So I think for me, a leader is that is, is that guiding light that that you're attracted to in some way. And leadership in 2021 is about followership. People have the choice. They don't they don't have to follow the leader. They have a choice as to who they can follow. So it is that that attractiveness to wanting to um, go after and and support that leader in in what they've in the aspiration that they've sort of painted in the vision that they've painted. So back to you talked about being over in the UAE um, at one point in time and you know as part of your journey I guess I'm interested are there any moments that stand out for you did you have um, female role models um, as you moved your way through the career, you know, there's some of the we can't be what we can't see sort of stuff and things like that. You know, how um, are there things you'd like to share in that space with us always? Yeah, I probably didn't have a lot of role models back coming through my career. I feel like I've got more role models now than I had uh, through the entirety of my career. And they're probably more peers and or, or senior women uh, either inside or outside the industry that I've been fortunate enough to meet um, more recently. Um, when I was in the UAE, I had a very dear colleague and friend who, whilst I was running the UAE, she was running our, our business over in Qatar. So we were quite unique, uh, being two women mm. in charge of a business in the Middle East in the engineering sector, very rare. Um, and we bounced a lot off of each other and supported each other, uh, you know, in many ways around recognising that we were not only quite unique within Oricon, but quite unique in the Middle East. And, and she was very determined and very powerful uh, young woman. And um, so I got a lot out of her. And again, it probably wasn't as a role model, somebody that had been there, done that, because we were kind of experiencing that, that together. So she had a profound impact on me and always will. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away in quite young in 2015. But, um, you know, her for me, the legacy that she left in me was that, uh, you know, that mantle, that desire. There's, I think there's a piece of me that also drives to succeed for myself a little bit for her as well. So That's gorgeous. So I think, yeah, so I think the impact more from, from women on me has been, um, been later in my career. And... You know, the flip side of that is I was very fortunate throughout my career to have some very strong, very supportive men mm. who mentored me and, and more importantly, who sponsored me and who helped me move through the organisation and, and get opportunities, particularly at that later, you know, the last seven or so years where I've probably um, been a little bit more deliberate about how I've 
tracked my career and the choices that I've made and the opportunities that I've taken. What does a good sponsor look like? You know, you flag that as being extremely important to you. What, yeah. is, what does that look like for people out there who are thinking, how do I find one? Well, I think sponsorship, uh, you know, is there's a there's a uh, advocacy around sponsorship that's really important. And we know from research that typically in male-dominated sectors that this ha can happen quite naturally for men. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they might form relationships with people in the organisation through things like, you know, going and playing a round of golf or hanging out at the pub or, you know, just bonding. And yeah. often, particularly in male-dominated sectors, women can cannot get the same exposure to those sort of relationships. So it's important for organisations to design those things, those those systems in. And, you know, certainly at Oricon, we, we have a sponsorship program where we identify high potential people through the organisation and try and, uh, you know, provide them with sponsors. So for me, the sponsors that I've had, they've been, it's similar to a mentoring relationship, but it is actually somebody who will um, actively go out and connect you with people or um, advocate for you, you know, and I know in my past, I've had people that have, you know, I've had sponsors who have sort of picked up the phone and spoken to their networks and said, hey, you should get to know Louise, or she'd be really good for this, or I think you should talk to her about this opportunity, um, and really taken my aspirations and my dreams and my career goals, and helped position me for them, either within the organisation or within the broader industry. Amazing to have, um, you know, to have those relationships, I guess, whether they form organically or they're a little bit more, um, uh, you know, created, I think to have them is incredibly important. Can I ask, um, I often get asked about, and particularly more so with females, about helping females find their voice. I just wonder when I use that term, does that mean anything to you? Does that resonate at all with you? Yeah, I think it does. I think sometimes we can be our own worst enemies in that we, you know, there's that there's that saying that for a woman to put her name forward for a job, she needs to tick nine out of the ten criteria. Uh, whereas uh, if if um, if a man was to go for a job, he might say, well, I tick five of them, so I'll have a go. And I think we need to sort of tend more towards that. Let's just have a go and be in it for the experience, if nothing else. But so for me, finding a voice really is about take, making that transition. Uh, and, and I sort of did it, I feel that I did it when I translated um, my career journey from being what was quite an opportunistic one. You know, the, I would people would come to me and say, I've got this opportunity. And I sort of had this, you know, I loved traveling. I wasn't really burdened down uh, early on in my career. Um, so I just had this mentality of, well, I'll just take any door that opens for me. And see where it goes. Uh, I really find, found, think for me, finding my voice was that latter part in my career where I started to say, no, okay, this is where I want to get to. How am I going to get there? And be a bit more deliberate and be a bit more vocal about where I wanted to go and what I was looking for in opportunities, saying no a bit more often, but being quite vocal about why I was saying no and what I actually wanted. I do think in order to do it well, um, you really need to, it needs to be an authentic voice, most importantly. And I think that is profoundly important coming into 2021 for leaders to build that authentic voice. And I, uh, something that one of my my mentors taught me early on was this idea that you, you have these 
three circles. Um, one being, you know, what are you passionate about? So what are you authentically passionate about? And then the second circle being, what are you good at? So, you know, you've had various feedback along your career. What do you, what do you think you're really good at? And then the third piece being, you know, what does your organisation or the industry need from you? What, what opportunities are out there? And if you sort of put those, overlay those three circles across each other, you'll have this nice little sweet spot in the middle where they all intersect. And if you, if you try and position yourself there, then you'll, you know, you'd be able to find your voice but in a very authentic authentic way. And that's where you've really got to stand up and say, well, I know that you need this uh, to your organisation. You need this. I'm very passionate about it. I'm very good at it. Um, and, and that can often be a really nice place for people to, you know, aspire to, to sit in and, and get some experience in there because, you you know, we've, we've learned from 2020. If you had to get out of bed every morning in 2020 and do something that you weren't, passionately attached to or you know authentically um driven by then it would have been a pretty rough year and to be fair it'll continue to be a rough 2021 it's not over yet (laughs) Um, you touch on a couple of things there that have been really interesting you know throughout the interview series um it's amazing um probably not surprising but the number of incredibly successful females who um, have shared stories with me about um, job opportunities that they didn't put their hand up for because, and their mindset at the time was, um, you know, they know me, uh, they believe in me, I've got good, strong advocates in the organisation. If they want me to do this job, they would come and ask me. Um, Yeah, look, it's a complex one. And I think, you know, sometimes you can be a bit, you've depends how deeply you understand your organization you know sometimes there can be all manner of things happening that can mean that in that situation an organization wouldn't necessarily come and tap you on the shoulder that they might do a broader process maybe they've got two people that they think they could have advocates for two people coming at them um they could just be running an open, uh, you know, a, a bit more of an open process because they want to be able to demonstrate to people that they're going to put the best person in the role. But it doesn't mean that they're not sitting there, you know, wishing and hoping that you would, <laughs> that you'll put your name up. I, I do, I do, I would like to think in our organisation that we would still tap you on your shoulder and say, let's have a go at this. You know, and I, I do think this piece um, around you know, what they call or what I've, what's usually called the imposter syndrome Mm. is a really important elephant in the room to talk about. Um, And and I think it's something for all people to talk about. I do think that women and particularly women from minority backgrounds um, do suffer from this, that statistics would indicate they suffer from this more. But I think we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that it's a broad um, issue that, that many, many, many leaders, male or female, do suffer with. Um, I certainly have times where I sit there and, you know, I listen to you read out my bio and I go, gee, man, one day somebody's going to come along and find me out. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you, you just, you can't believe that, um, that because we see ourselves as ordinary people. We are ordinary people. And, sure. and so it can often be difficult to um, reconcile achievements with the fact that, you know, I've still got a seven-year-old that'll, that'll cut me down to earth any day of the week um, glad, gladly and, and, you know, that we should be grateful for that. But uh, so I think that imposter syndrome is an important elephant in the room to talk about. And I do think that 
for me, what it is about is it's almost about reflection. It's about reflecting on, you know, that inner voice that we all have that can undermine some of what we've done, but occasionally sitting back and, and reflecting on all of your achievements and saying, well, you know, there's a fair bit of, um, there's a fair bit of positivity in that. And I've done this and I've done that and I've done this. And, and uh, also in the case of looking at a job description, you know, recognising that um, a lot of times, and certainly this is our, uh, one of the big um, parts of what we believe in Oricon, and this came off the back of, of, a, of a philosophy, I guess, that Gian also introduced into our organisation, is that hiring leaders based on what they've done in the past is only half the story yeah. because you want them to do a job into the future. So you really need, you really should be focusing mostly on what their potential is to do that work and to continue to grow into the future. Because if you hire somebody just based on what they've done in the past and that person is unable to take that step forward, then, um, you know, they, they, they'll only be half as good as somebody who perhaps hasn't done it all in their past, but has full potential to go forward and, smash it in the future it's really important the point you pick up about imposter syndrome and you know I was lucky pretty early in my career I had a fabulous mentor a guy by the name of Steve Morfitt and he was CEO of the organization at the time and you know he he planted the seed for me about you could be CEO one day it wasn't on my radar before that and he then said to me, and I've never forgotten it, he said, you know, Melissa, you just need to realise that whenever anyone steps into a role like this, they're all just crapping themselves, wondering if one day people are going to find out that they don't really know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just remember looking at him, someone that I thought, surely there was never a day where he didn't know what he was doing, um, telling me that. And it just gave me this incredible kind of, oh, maybe, maybe I could, mm. uh, you know, maybe I could do that can I ask Louise you know there are you've been very passionate from a very early age about the direction you're heading in um, and there'll be lots of people in the audience watching this thinking you know I could never um, I could never be like that I could never be like Louise how would you respond to that I'm sure you get that feedback yeah look I think um, again it there's a part of me that goes, really, <laughs> I, uh, I don't get it. Uh, um, and that's that, you know, that is that piece around, well, we all, we all just think we're regular. We all just think we're pretty average, normal people. So I think, um, you know, the, I think one of the things, I mean, I was passionate from a very young age. So, you know, I didn't, I, I, I barely even reflected. I mean, I went through school. You can imagine I was in regional South Australia. So, we had very small classes doing the subjects that I was doing. And I was certainly the only girl in the great majority of those classes. So, but I never really sat back to think I didn't belong in this field. Um, probably until I got to uni and I, and I did look around and go, hmm, gee, man, this is feeling a little bit, you know, insecure here. Uh, and that was probably the first time, but by then, you know, it was still my passion just overrode that. Um, I know a lot of people don't necessarily have that that specific drive from such a young age, but I do think the world and the the, the way of working is changing, whereby that challenge um, of not necessarily knowing exactly what you'd want to do from day one uh, could get a lot could get could be getting easier. In that, I think the days of people having 
you know, a singular career that lasts them their whole career a, a, a dwindling, one might say, you know, this idea that we have to keep reinventing ourselves and we have to be willing to be, the, you know, that lifelong learning piece that I spoke about earlier is going to be incredibly important, not just for leaders, but for any skill sets, that idea that as what you're doing today gets disrupted with new technologies um, as the way of working changes. I mean, how much disruption have we faced in the last in the last 12 months around just simple the simple things of where we work and how we work and how often we go there? Things that have been set in stone for such a long time. So I think this idea that we have to keep reinventing ourselves will become more normal to us, and that really does open up such wonderful opportunities for for people to say, okay, well. I've been down this path, maybe I'll try this path, maybe I'll try that path. And the piece that goes along with that is, is having the courage to do it, is really having the courage to say, well, I'm going to make that transition and I'm going to jump in both feet and do it. Um, and, I, you know, I look at my career, um, I think I do believe in luck. I think I've been quite fortunate along the way. I'm not somebody that sits there and says that you don't, um, you don't get lucky in life. Um, but, uh, you know, I just think people that are sitting there looking at uh, people like myself and looking at those that have made it to CEO or C-suite positions and who think that they can't necessarily achieve that, um, you know, the first question is, well, is it really something you're passionate about? Is it something that you definitely want to achieve? Because it's not the only option to succeed in organisations and and in life. And um, And then to sit down and perhaps have a go at, mapping out what it might, what that journey might look like, accepting that it doesn't have to be any longer a journey that is straight up a ladder. You know, it can be a bit more of a meandering, trying different things, getting different experiences, and arguably that's even more important. Can I ask you, um, so there's a, a report that was released last year by Per Capita, um, and it was a, a report, so 2020, and it was a gender report. Yeah. And... Um, one of the things they identified, I mentioned earlier about um, girls dropping out of maths and science. The other thing that came out was about girls um, stopping participating in sport. Mm. And I just, I know you have been involved in sport and, and continue to be involved in sport. I just wonder whether you see any connections at all between sport, between people's mindsets, um, you know, any links at all that could be helpful for people. Yeah, look, I think for me, um, particularly going through those teenage years, I was pretty heavily involved in a variety of sports. I never played sport at an elite level, but I had I had a love and a passion for sport. I played a lot of netball. I have always loved playing cricket, albeit I, you know, I only got into playing club cricket when I was in my late 20s, um, and I still play that today. Um, but I think through those, uh, those teenage years, I also dance that was actually my first thing I was a highland dancer for a number of years oh wow what it does is um it provides you a it provides you a purpose firstly and it, particularly when you get into team sports I think it's profoundly important particularly for young women but for young teenagers yeah. in general yeah. uh, it, it it gives you a purpose and it gives you a purpose that is driven in part by not wanting to let the team down Mm. And uh, so it can keep you grounded and connected to to getting up every day and doing something or getting up on the weekend and doing something and having a team that you 
that is counting on you and wanting to perform and wanting to succeed and, and uh, you know, wanting to have fun in that team environment. And I think as you go through those teenage years, that can be particularly important. And we, I saw that with my own stepdaughters when they were young teenagers. They played a lot of sports uh, over in the UK. They played football and, and that, I think, it did. It really gave them a bit of an underlying purpose and friendship group and stability through what are incredibly challenging time for young women mm -hmm. um, as they go through all of those early teenage years. And then up into, you know, ideally up through, um, up through in, into your 20s, just a way to keep healthy and keep strong. And I mean, I, I personally find, I don't, I'm not an expert in this area, so I don't know what the data suggests, but I certainly find that um, <clears throat> now uh, I can go through a, an incredibly stressful day and uh, just the feeling of getting out there with going to cricket training with the ladies that I play with and and that uh, just being there and having that fun and, and challenging yourself a little bit. I am pretty competitive, so they do have to keep me toned down. But uh, um, it's really, it relieves that stress. Not only is it really healthy for you and really good for you, but, you know, having that support network and having those women around you and um, it, it does for me, it just takes that stress away and and keeps me healthy both in my mind and my body mm -hmm. uh, and I and I also think that the skills that you learn as you're young playing sport around discipline around teamwork around um, drive around goal setting I mean all of these skills are incredibly translatable into professional careers and that's why we see um, you know at Oricon we provide sponsorship to an to a not-for-profit called Minerva which is focused on um, pairing up elite sportswomen with uh, mentors from, you know, highly successful people from uh, corporate Australia so that we can help these women transition into the next stage of their careers, noting that the skill sets that they have built up, particularly as elite professional sportswomen, are incredibly valuable um, in, in, in leadership in, in companies. What a fantastic investment and something incredibly tangible um, mm. that that you guys are doing. Can I ask about vulnerability? And, you know, Brene Brown was one of the inspirations behind me doing the interview series, and she talks about vulnerability being sort of brave and afraid at the same time. Um, what makes you vulnerable? Well, look, I think that, uh, you know, if we look at the year that we've just had, I mean, I think it's really important for leaders to show their vulnerability, uh, particularly within their teams that they lead. Uh, and I do that a lot. I think that uh, recognising that as a leader, you have strengths. And I've always focused on knowing what my strengths are and then working on becoming a better leader through those strengths, um, rather than, I think, uh, you know, another philosophy might be to work on your weaknesses and try and you know, become good at, at what you're often profoundly not good at. And I'm not a fan of that. I think, you know, you can waste a lot of time trying to become good at something that you're not very good at rather than creating a team environment where you sort of supplement and complement your weaknesses with other people who have strengths in those areas. And that does require you to be quite vulnerable because it requires you to stand up and own the fact that you're not good at everything. Mm -hmm. And if we think about a traditional view of what a leader is, they're you know, there can often be this sort of awestruck moment of they're, they're fantastic at everything. And I, I just don't think that that's realistic in, in the modern 
world of leadership. So I think being vulnerable with your team is particularly important uh, so that they understand what your strengths are and then they understand uh, what their strengths are and how they can complement you. And then being willing to give them the space and empower them to, to take on those strengths and to, and to you know, take on decision-making and to help guide that. Um, I think also from a broader perspective, it's incredibly powerful for people to know, um, you know, we, if we, uh, we go through something like we've gone through in 2020 and we're often on these Zoom calls with, you know, talking to our organisations, talking to broad teams, I think it can be incredibly empowering and it can build resilience within an organisation for people who are often sitting at home in incredibly challenging situations and maybe they've got, um, you know, a partner who's lost their job or mm. they're homeschooling kids. They might have got help people who had children under the age of school who had to have them at home for a period here in Melbourne last year. Absolutely. All of these challenges that people are facing, if all they do is get onto a Zoom call with their leader and see this polished person who's just sitting there going, we'll be fine, nothing to see here, everything's okay. Um, I think it's much more powerful for them to see that, you know, you're only human too and that we've all struggled and, and that that's okay and that collectively that we can make it through um, particularly major challenges like what we've been through recently and, you know, other organisational challenges that will come up. What a pressure that takes off leaders as well. Oh, absolutely. It does. It makes you... It, it makes you you yourself realise that you don't have to have all the answers. Yeah, um, absolutely. That, and, and actually that the more open you are to you not having all the answers and the more open you are to having a conversation either within a team or at an organisational level around big challenges, that uh, you're probably more likely to come up with a better answer and a better solution anyway. Can I ask you a question about um, when you and I met, met briefly before the interview, you shared a quote with me that a coach of yours had said to you at one stage um, in your career, which was, don't be the collateral damage. I just wonder if you can recall what that was in reference to. Yeah, look, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day and I thought, what was it in reference to? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I was trying to think uh, exactly the context of what we were talking about because I have um, many discussions with with my coach. Um, you know, I, I, I think possibly that uh, it might have been around, um, and it goes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, which is around, you know, understanding organisational politics, understanding what's driving the organisation, making sure that you're aligned to it. Um, and... Um, you know, and that piece around needing to be authentic and being driven by what you stand for. Um, and I spoke about that sort of vector, the three circles before and the piece in the middle, you have to recognise, I think sometimes we can expect too much from organisations. Um, and I often have this conversation with with young people who, who talk to me about, you know, wanting to do something in their career and, and, and they, they say, um, you know, particularly in hierarchical organisations, they might say, well, they've spoken to their line manager about it. I spoke to my line manager and I told them this is what they wanted to do and I'm sitting here 12 months later and I still can't do it. And and you sort of sit there and you you say, oh, okay. So if, if your line manager thinks that you are very, very good, they are almost the most conflicted person in helping you take the next step in your career. So <laughs> they're only human. Yep. Um, there's, a, there's a chance that perhaps they, they're doing this half-hearted, even the best of them are doing this in a half-hearted manner because the minute they lose you, they, 
they they have a problem. Now, a lot of line managers will say, well, I wouldn't do that because I'm more driven by seeing somebody succeed. And, and that's very true. But I do often think, um, you know, getting out there and um, really uh, understanding how people tit work and what drives people and what drives organisations and then finding your place and not and being willing to walk away or find another opportunity elsewhere, outside the industry, inside the industry, in a different organisation, if you can't find your opportunity in that organisation. And I think that gets even more um, pointed the, the closer you get up to the top, right? Because you can be exceptional uh, and you could be on the succession for a CEO role and you could be an exceptional leader, but you could be up against two other exceptional leaders. And at the end of the day, no matter how much an organisation loves you or how much somebody loves you, there can only be one CEO. So I think if I reflect back and I reflect back on conversations with my coach, it was probably about talking about that, that need to stay true to yourself through your career and not and to, to not be sort of driven down a pathway that, that you're not comfortable with or that you're not passionate um, or you can't authentically lead in uh, just because you're perhaps not afraid, you're a bit afraid to take a step outside or to take a step somewhere else. And that's been an interesting piece of feedback for me because I have been with the organisation I've been with so long. And I'm very pleased that, you know, I, I am still able to achieve what I want to achieve in this organisation and, and have the opportunities that I want to have. And I am deeply connected to the organisation and deeply aligned to, to Oricon and its values and where it's going. Um, but, you know, if that's ever to change, then I have to take that feedback myself and say, okay, well, what next? What else is there? And, and, uh, and, and that can be quite difficult for people, particularly who've been in one organisation for a very long time. Why are we still having this conversation? Around uh, things being yeah. uh, diversity in general? Uh, yeah, look, it's, it's, yeah, it's amazing and it, it probably is um, mildly depressing and, and probably for people that have maybe further into their career than I am, um, they, you know, they probably say that with some frustration. Look, I think... Um, I think we're building momentum. I really do believe that. I think that there's some things that have happened um, very, very visibly around the world, around um, the issues that women particularly face in the workforce. Um, the second piece that I think is quite magical and being a cricket fan, I just love it, is the movement that we're seeing in women's sport. And, and I would put our Australian women's cricket team at the forefront of that journey. Um, we are seeing a lot of other sports go along with that but um, you know I, I see that in my own experience in my humble little cricket team which is nowhere near <laughs> at that level but um, you know just the passion that these women have and the courage that they show to get out there every weekend and that will resonate through to our young women because they'll be able to see that and they'll be able to aspire to it. Um, I think the other thing that we're already also seeing that is going to put some impetus on this journey and 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 build a bit of momentum is the challenge that we have this generation of men that are coming through who also want greater equality um, in the home. They want to be more active uh, parents. Um, they, you know, they, they want to be part of that family life. They don't, uh, they don't want to be defined by just a career. 
Mm. Um, and 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 they also want to be able to live this authentic life where they can succeed in multiple aspects of of life um, alongside uh, you know everybody else, regardless of of what uh, group you sort of pin yourself to. Um, so I think organisations are kind of come under increased pressure to find a world where people, regardless of all of those differences that we have, um, can fulfil their full potential, whatever that full potential is. Yes. And um, and I think that 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 the I think that this is going to be that we are feeling a bit of bottom up momentum and demand. Uh, we know that particularly in our world of STEM for organisations that operate in that and, and across the professions, really, we're going to see skills shortages uh, into the future. And so people are going to be able to make a choice and, and they're going to be able to say, well, I don't want to work for you because you're not going to do this, this, this and this for me. Um, so I think we are building momentum. And uh, I certainly hope that in another decade, we're sitting here you know, having a, a, a when when we talk about diversity, we're we're having a different conversation about um about diversity purely of thought as opposed to demographic diversity in the workplace. Mm. I think that's uh, incredibly well said, Louise. Um, final question for you and I um, in our conversation is: from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like today, and does it need to change? Yeah, look, I think, um, again, and I, I think, I feel like I've referenced 2020 so much, but how can you not, right? It's been the pivotal point, <laughs> focal point for all of our lives. I think that um, in terms of how does it change, I think it perhaps just gets a bit braver. Um, I really do think that uh, the skills and attributes that, um, that, are, that we would put under feminine leadership are coming into their own uh, post uh, in a post-COVID world. That idea that I said earlier about followership really being the new currency of leadership, the fact that people can make a choice, the fact that we are seeing activism, we're seeing, and this is even pre-COVID, let alone now, mm -hmm. in the next decade, we saw kids on the street talking about climate change and this idea that, um, that leaders have to stand for something more than just profit and performance. And you know, probably in the last 20 years, we've talked a lot about soft skills mm. and um, and we have, you know, indicated that typically, and I don't like stereotypes too much, but a lot of those soft skills, uh, women have uh, are, are profoundly good at a lot of those soft skills. Um, I think for the last 20 years, we've sort of said that soft skills as being, oh, that's a bit so-so, you know, that's not so important. But I think a number of those skills around the, you know, we've talked about it, empathy, authenticity, around being able to listen, um, around, you know, having, uh, showing care and um, um, being able to take people on a journey with you. Uh, those skills are absolutely going to come into their own front and centre. And we're going to need to not only be able to have those skills around the basics of running a business, but overlaid with those other skills that um, I think uh, fall nicely under the title of feminine leadership. Um, they, they are they're going to come into their own in the next decade. The leadership skills that have got the world where, the, where it's got to are not the leadership skills that are going to get us where we need to get to in the next 10 or 20 years. So 
I think uh, brave feminine leadership possibly just becomes a bit braver. We really start to recognise that we don't need to mould ourselves around a historical view of what leadership ought to be, that we just bring our whole selves to work and we, and we use our strengths and we build on those strengths. And collectively with other, with our teams, we can take our organisations where they need to go. So um, I think, uh, yeah, it just gets a bit braver. Hmm. Thank you so much for joining our conversation, Louise. Um, I'm really excited to watch the, the next brave steps that you continue thank to you. take. Um, and I really appreciate you joining in. So thank you so much. No, thank you. It's been fantastic and uh, I really enjoyed our conversations. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.